From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and tomorrow is the election. For the past 13 weeks, we've been trying to provide some deep background to the vote, talking to philosophers, historians, scientists and politicians about the really big questions. What none of them has told us is who's going to win. So we'll be back next week and beyond to try and make sense of the result, whatever it means. For our final pre-election podcast, I'm talking to someone who knows what it's like to win an unexpected election victory. David Howarth, who was Lib Dem MP for Cambridge from 2005 to 2010, taking the seat from Labour. He tells me what he thinks has gone wrong with electoral democracy. There's a populist theory, which is very common in the electorate, that all politicians are evil and all voters are pure. Neither of these things is true. And what might be coming next? The civil service really hasn't moved on in its attitude since the days of Charles I. And we're going to be back in that sort of situation of trying to govern without reference to Parliament. I'll also be talking to the correspondent from the German newspaper Die Zeit about how the campaign has looked from a German perspective. Stay with us. But before that, I'm joined by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finn Barlivzi on public policy, and Chris Brook on political theory. If you want to find out who they think is going to win, you'll have to stay with us right to the end. Something we haven't discussed at all on this podcast, partly because it's had almost no coverage in the campaign itself, is who's paying for it all, and does money make a difference, as it unquestionably does in American politics? As we enter the crunch point of the campaign, will the Tory advantage in funding, they're said to have raised almost £80 million, or nearly double what Labour has raised, finally make a difference? Finbar, what do you think? Um, It doesn't seem to be making a difference. The polls haven't moved. This is one of the comments about this election. Everybody's been waiting for the moment when the polls break one way or the other. And the Conservative strategy has been that we are going to outspend, that we're going to target, that we're going to be doing the traditional things that we do. But it hasn't given them a return. Underneath those numbers that the Tories came in with a huge war chest and that they've been outspending Labour usually two to one, is that Labour actually have been raising more money through the election. A lot of that is coming from the unions. But there's something in there that says there is momentum in the fundraising for Labour. The last thing to say, though, is the latest report we have, which is unfortunately about two weeks out of date from the Electoral Commission, suddenly there's been this new spurt of fundraising from the Conservatives. Does that say that they see a need to put even more money into the campaign. We won't know the full numbers until about two weeks after the election, but that seems to be what's happening. But these are piddling sums compared to what would be raised in the United States. And it seems to me this is one of the ways in which it's a mistake to think this is a presidential-style election campaign, because if it were in the US mould, we'd be talking billions, not tens of millions, and we would really notice the difference. The presidential candidate who spends the most tends to win. Ours is just an old-fashioned British election, isn't it, Helen? Absolutely. And there's a piece in the New York Times this week written really in a spirit of bafflement at what goes on in British democratic politics, the idea that the candidates and parties spend so little money, that it's so low tech and that people still run around with clipboards knocking on people's doors and delivering leaflets. It just doesn't look like democratic politics when you look at it from the United States. So it's clipboards and leaflets, but also, Chris, one giant stone plinth. One thing that we're told Ed Miliband will spend some of his small amount of money on is a big stone plinth in the Downing Street Garden to remind him of of his pledges to the British electorate, the parties are really digging in before an election that we're told will require them all to compromise. So in some ways, the big question over this last week is, why are they drawing red lines that they know that they're going to have to breach? I'm not sure they know that they're going to have to breach them. I think the parties are drawing their red lines with some care. Uh, The Conservatives are emphasising the referendum on the euro, which will be a hard pill for the Liberal Democrats to swallow. But I think the Tories know the Lib Dems may swallow it. The Lib Dems seem to me to be drawing their red lines quite carefully to have policies that they have reason to believe the other parties will accept. So I think you see the asymmetry in power going into the hypothetical post-election 
negotiations reflected in the kind of red lines that they're drawing. But of course, to some extent, they are tying their hands in advance, and that may prove problematic once the votes are all in. And Miliband, in some ways, has been toughest on this. He's been tying his hands more than anyone else and saying he has no intention of going back on any of his manifesto commitments because he doesn't want to increase mistrust in British politics by breaking his word. He's also said that he will not do any deals with the SNP. I don't want to get too academic about this, but academics who call themselves game theorists, I think, would have an explanation for what's going on here. It's called a prisoner's dilemma, which is effectively that all the parties would be better off not making commitments that they think they may well have to breach. But you don't want to be the one party that doesn't have red lines when everyone else does have red lines, because come the negotiations, you're going to be weaker. So going into the negotiations, everyone is tying their hands, though everyone might be better off post the negotiations not having had their hands tied. And it is a classic problem of politics and negotiation, Finbar. Absolutely. And, you know, there's the classic phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And that's essentially what the parties are trying to do. They're trying to arm themselves so they've got the weapon right to negotiate. The problem is that negotiation theory, as you say, not to get too academic, has moved on. What they're doing is called positional bargaining. And what all the good negotiators do is called principle negotiation. You talk about interests. You talk about issues. You don't say that this is my flag on the ground because it just causes you trouble. The way in which you're going to get the best result is by understanding the interests around you and trying to work through them. The problem is that you're in a political situation that they have to put the flags on the ground they feel to defend positions to the vote. And that's essentially what's happening. There's a tension between the system of voting, I must say these things so that I will hold on to seats or have any chance for Labour of getting a seat in Scotland. But then in the actual negotiations to form a government, you desperately don't want to be there. You want to be in a principled negotiation. Chris, do you think Miliband has left himself enough wriggle room on doing a deal with the SNP? Because he's been pretty clear about that. And we have to assume that what he's going to do is a kind of Clinton, it's not what we call sex thing, where he says it's not actually a deal, it's something else. But my suspicion is that's going to be a pretty hard thing to sell, especially when he's taken a line that politicians who break their promises are the ones who are feeding mistrust in the system. Is he really going to be able to walk that line? I think Miliband is in a quite a strong position because of the corner that the SNP have painted themselves into. They've said they're going to lock the Tories out of Downing Street. They have been strongly signalling that their enemy is the Conservative Party. Mr Miliband can lead a minority government which can remain in office as long as the SNP doesn't vote with the Conservative Party. That's the challenge that Nicola Sturgeon will be facing. Though, of course, she won't be in the House of Commons. In that case, that's the challenge that Alex Salmond will be facing with the SNP in the House of Commons. To the extent that the SNP are willing to vote with the Conservatives, they will have a great deal of power in the new House of Commons. To the extent that they're unwilling to do so, they'll be much, much weaker. Helen, do you think that counts as a non-deal deal? Can he sell that as not a deal if Miliband is Prime Minister? I don't think that he can in this sense, is, is that it still means that every time that there's a vote in the House of Commons, he needs to know in advance whether he's going to, that bill's going to pass or it's, it's not going to pass. He can't keep going to the House of Commons taking the risk that the SNP is going to vote with the Conservative Party. It's much better from his point of view actually to talk to at least Salmon before any vote um, takes place. But as soon as he gets into that dynamic, that looks like a deal. I think you can see what happened in the last question time when he was put in that position is he went a little bit further than he wanted to go in ruling out the deal and then tried to backtrack a bit, but it wasn't possible for him to do so. Thanks to Helen, Finbar and Chris. Like I say, you'll hear who they think's actually going to win later on. This week I spoke down a phone line to Hue Farm, who's been covering our election for the leading German newspaper Die Zeit, travelling with the Miliband campaign, visiting marginal constituencies and also taking a trip to Scotland. How different did she find the Scottish campaign from what she'd seen in England? I went up to Scotland um, three weeks ago to hear Alex Salmond speak when just as he entered his own bid to become an MP. That was very different. The feeling in Scotland was very different. You had a feeling that you were in a different country. People were really excited. There were loads of people turned up to see him speak. And he's a very good speaker. He really knows how to move the crowd. So you really did have a sense there, oh, they think this is really important and this is a bit of a historical thing, which it is for Scotland, of course. But it has a very different temperature set of emotions than what you get here in England. 
Have you seen Nicola Sturgeon speak at all? Because one of the odd things about the Scottish campaign is the SNP, in a way, have two leaders, which none of the other parties do. And Alex Salmond, as you say, he's a charismatic politician. Do you sense that the, the, the leader that people in England are seeing of Scottish nationalism, who is Nicola Sturgeon, who doesn't go down well at all with the English, did you get any sense of her? I did uh, see her speak at the LSE, and I think she's a very interesting politician. A lot of people here in England, but also in Germany, complain that all politicians all tend to be men, uh, and here in the UK they you know, all studied the PPE at Oxford. Okay, but not Angela Merkel. <laughs> but, yeah. and Because and we, we look at Germany and think that you obviously have the most dominant woman politician in the world. In a way we do, but Angela Merkel was underestimated uh, for a very long time. I don't know whether, with Nicola Sturgeon, maybe it was the same thing. She may be the Angela Merkel of Scotland. She seems to have a different style, and she's obviously very left-wing. Nicola Sturgeon is much more outspoken, whereas Angela Merkel is plays her cards very close, keeps her cards very close to her chest. Uh, Angela Merkel doesn't stress the female factor very much. She does it in a more subtle way, whereas Nicola Sturgeon, I think, did something very, very interesting when she um, ganged up with Natalie Bennett and Leanne Wood at a Challengers debate. And you could really, that was such an interesting image. You had these three women who are quite, uh, you know, radical, um, anti-establishment, very outspoken, very clear in putting Farage back. They are getting together in this girl power thing. Um, and really, I felt that I really put the men in the debate, um, i.e. Nigel Farage and Ed Miliband, put them in the corner. I think Nicola Sturgeon is a very charismatic politician, even though I may not agree with her. She is different, she is important, and she has something to say. And that's a big difference to what the other party leaders have put up so far. I also asked her what she thought of what might be called the German solution to looming electoral impasse, which is a grand coalition of the two main parties, Labour and the Tories together in government. To be honest, I don't think I would recommend it to you. <laughs> in Germany, the Grand Coalition is very popular. It's much more popular amongst the people than the politicians because they feel it, it's very stable and they get things done. And that's true, they do get things done. But on the other hand, it does stifle political debate because you don't have a strong opposition. The policies that the government wants to put through, they'll just put them through. And here in Britain, you have a much stronger culture of political debate. You also have this tribal uh, voting identity, I think. The Labour and the Conservatives were to merge. It would perhaps kill off a very important part of you know, the British political culture. People are already feel that there's no big difference if you vote Labour or Conservative or if Cameron or Miliband are in power. People already feel that politics don't matter very much and it doesn't matter who they cast their vote for. If you had a grand coalition, it might reinforce the sense that politicians are all the same and they all, you know, do whatever they like and there's no connection with the people and the society which today in modern times has become much more fragmented. Finally, we talked about what Germans might envy about the British way of doing politics. Did she feel that constituency election produce a closer engagement between the politicians and the voters? You know, when I went to see David Cameron at his manifesto launch in Swindon, he used this word which I think no other politician any other country would ever use. He spoke of the dream of the British property democracy. Maybe it was property-owning democracy. That's something which I found so British. Of course, housing is a very, very important issue. And in this country and in London, it's crazy and it creates huge social inequality. So I totally understand that it's an important issue, but there's this political significance behind a policy which I think in my country would not be seen as in such an emotional way. And apart from that, there's also, um, of course, due to the voting system, the whole thing about the marginal seats, you know, the ground war in the, in the marginal seat and the, and the air war about public opinions and polls, that's also much more pronounced here than in Germany. The, the election campaign is, is taking place on, on different levels. You actually have to go out and find the election campaign. You won't you just... Do, you have to go to the marginals because no one knows what's going on there. <laughs> I did go to the marginals. I went up to Thurrock the other night. Thurrock is a, how, it's how an interesting place. 
It's a three-way marginal seat. You could have a Labour and a Conservative, the incumbent is a Conservative MP, or a UKIP candidate. And I went to see this um, this town hall meeting. It was actually very interesting, and I found all three of them uh, to be quite good candidates. When you see them up close, they listen to people's concerns and they actually answer people's questions, as opposed to what you will see in the TV debate. Incidentally, Hue's other stomping ground is Greece, where she's now off to cover the possible collapse of that country's political and economic system. But she promises me that if ours falls apart first, she'll be back to write about Britain again. Now to my conversation with David Howarth, who won the Cambridge seat in the 2005 election after a passionately contested campaign, taking it from the Labour MP Anne Campbell. We've heard a lot on this podcast about what campaigns are like in general or abstract terms, but what's it actually like to fight one on the inside? Cambridge is an unusual constituency in that it was safely Tory in the 1980s, had a Labour MP during the 1990s, and for the last 10 years has been represented by a Liberal Democrat. I started by asking David, when did he realise in 2005 that he was actually going to win? At the start of the campaign, didn't really think we had any chance at all. Halfway through the campaign, um, there was an enormous rally. With thousands of people couldn't get in, and standing outside in the market square, and Charles Kennedy giving an old-fashioned outdoor speech. And at that point, I started thinking, mm, that's interesting. And then I bumped into a, an old colleague or old opponent, um, Simon Sedgwick-Gell, former leader of the Cambridge City Council, then Green, I think, but formerly Labour. And he was always a great sophologist in local politics. And he said, oh, I, I, you know, I think you're going to get close, but I don't think you'll win. And I remember thinking, well, actually, I think we're doing a bit better than that. But still, you're not confident. And you're not confident on the, on the night. I remember being in a you know, small party somewhere in Newnham, waiting for my agent to ring me. Got to about one in the morning. So I think you better come now. Come along thinking, well, I wonder what he means by that. Yeah. But when I got into the room, there all the, the old party guard with, with the tallies. Because what people do at the count is they, as the, the vote's being verified, they just look at the crosses on the paper and keep a, keep a score. And uh, at that point, you know you've won. My, my one memory of this kind of thing is in 1983, I worked for Frank Field in Birkenhead, which is now one of the safest Labour seats in the country. And even then, it was pretty safe. And I was yeah. 16 and knew nothing about politics, but I knew Labour were going to win. Yeah. And he was convinced on the night that they lost. Yeah, well, you always that he could, yeah, and he could yeah. smell it in the air, and he could That's feel right. it. And I just remember knowing nothing about politics, thinking there's something weird going on here because you haven't lost. But yeah. there was just despair in the camp. That's candidateitis. I thought well, that, I well, thought it was a well-known, a well-known disease that um, you generalise from the last person you speak to. So if someone's nice to you, you think yes, we've won, and if someone's nasty to you, you think oh, it's hopeless, we've got no chance. And that, that, that's why you can't trust candidates. Actually. And on the last podcast, we talked about the 1992 election, the famous election. And in retrospect, a lot of Labour people say they knew in the last two or three days that just something shifted, something went in the public mm. mood and they could smell it and it wasn't being picked up in the polls and this kind of almost mm. mythology. A lot of it, I think, post hoc. I where, think it's entirely post hoc. Do you think it's, Because I was going to say, do you think that's ever possible to sort of sniff the wind, even in this age of... Not in the two days before, because any proper campaign has stopped canvassing at that point and is concentrating solely on getting the vote out by throwing out vast amounts of paper to remind people to vote. Because the line in 1992 yeah. Yeah. was that people stopped looking Labour candidates in the eye and that's when they knew they were in trouble. But that to me no, sounds no. like... That can happen on the day. You know, council elections which, where we thought we were in with a chance and then on the day people weren't looking you in the eye and they certainly weren't looking you in the eye as they went into vote. And, and that's what's and, always and, said about a jury. If yeah, the jury yeah, looks at you when, you, yeah. when they come back in, you're okay. And if yeah. they're looking away, you're in trouble. That's right. So, so, so on, the day, on the day itself, you can pick up stuff. Although, again, if you're the candidate, your senses are interfered with by all these emotions. But if you're not the candidate, yes, you, you can get some idea during the day from the mood, but also just from the turnout. You know, from which people are turning out. This is a far more scientific thing than people on the outside imagine. So you can see whether your vote's turning out and where your opponent's vote's turning out, and you, and you can correlate that with whether people are looking at you. <laughs> and you, know, you can get a pretty good idea. You win, yep. and you suddenly discover that your, your new job is to represent Cambridge in the House of Commons. The 2005 election was distinctive in lots of ways, one of it which was you won in Cambridge, you defeated the incumbent mm. Labour candidate, mm. Labour had a bad election in many ways, and if Cambridge had been a bellwether, they would have been turfed out. But of course, they weren't. They were actually returned with a thumping majority, <laughs> despite the fact almost no one had voted for them because it was very low turnout nationally. Yeah. 
they won with a relatively small vote share, a little over 35%. And that translated under our system into a 67-seat majority, I think. So when you arrived in the Commons, my feeling as an outsider and as an academic was, well, this isn't going to wash because yeah. they've, they've got a thumping majority and nobody voted for them. Yeah. When you got to the Commons, were people saying that? Or were people just, well, we've won, deal with it, move on? Yeah, I, I was expecting the same as you. I was ex- expecting to turn up and say, this government's not legitimate. And for everybody else to be saying this, and for, for even the Labour members to be... Looking worried. a bit shameful. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, you know, all these people are here, they're not really representative of the country in any, any political way. But soon became clear that I think partly through the ceremonies and through the, through, through the, the ritual, that feeling just goes away. The, the government's got its majority. You have the Queen's speech. The Queen's speech lists the bills and the government's program. Then you have a vote and the government wins. And that's it. And you know, in, in terms of the rules, uh, there's nothing you can do then. You know, the committees are formed with government majorities. The bills are introduced and gov- the government wins with massive majorities. And you can say, well, in the country, no one really believes this stuff, like 90-day detention without charge. You know, but nevertheless, the government's got the majority. And you're just drawn into that world, that, sm- that small cut-off world of parliament, where in that world... Labour is in charge. When you were drawn into that world, what were the things that most surprised you about it? You're an academic like me, you're a lawyer, you're an economist, you study this world, and obviously you're a very active politician, so you knew the world, but you didn't know that world right from the inside. Hmm. So when you then get inside the bubble or whatever it is, what were the things that you can remember you thought, I had no idea it worked like this? Actually, the the main memory of things not working are all administrative. I didn't have an office for months. You're working from a kind of committee room with, with a bunch of tables and you, you know, you're hot desking. You have no staff. And I gather in 2010, the situation was even worse, that MPs were expected to set up their offices out of their own pockets, and then maybe they could get the, the money back later. Extraordinarily amateurish way of doing things. And yeah. did you go in with any expectations that as a backbench MP for the third of the three parties in, before the age of coalition government, you had any power at all? I was surprised to find out rather more than I expected. Uh, that's because even with the 66 majority, there were enough Labour rebellions going on that you could defeat the government. In fact, uh, there have been no government defeats uh, for a long time before 2005. 2005 to 10 Parliament, you know, we defeated the government four or five times. It was in some ways the yeah, most rebellious yeah. Parliament until this time. one. <laughs> until this one, yeah. And of course, in, in this one, the rebellions don't result in government defeats because the rebellions are often safe rebellions where people know that the government's going to win anyway. And so they think, well, it's fine, I'll, I'll rebel for the sake of my constituents. But in the 2005 parliament, there were rebellions which caused the, the result of the vote to change. Terrorist offences on 90-day detention. Government was actually defeated and the bill changed and the law changed. So that was kind of surprising. To what extent does a member of parliament feel that the primary role is to be the representative of a constituency? I mean, how did your relationship with Cambridge adapt over those five years? Did you feel yourself very much there to speak for, I'm going to say us, because I live here? That is technically impossible. Uh, there are 75,000 voters with completely different views on things. If you're making a speech in the, in the House on a political matter with a political view, you can't really be speaking for all 75,000. There'll be at least 25,000 of those people who just disagree with what you're saying. And there'll be quite a few who have no idea what you're saying because they've totally lost interest in politics. That, that's right. That crucial role of being a legislator and I suppose the role of being a national politician, the realistic situation is you're not representing your constituents. You're representing your political view. You're sitting in Parliament in the Liberal interest. You're representing your party as (laughs) well. Or even a political philosophy, because there might be battles within the party. And you know, deciding what the party's going to say, your role then is to is to represent a particular way of thinking or way of feeling. The constituency role is a different one. It's more like a a social work role. There are opportunities that MPs have for, for getting a constituent's case across to a public body that's messing them about, uh, which you wouldn't have if you weren't an MP. So, and you, you take up that work on behalf of anybody. You know, any of the 75,000 writes in saying, I want some help. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what their political view is. That's your constituency job. But that's not representing in the way you are speaking about. You don't represent constituents in, in any political sense. It's only in the, the service sense that you, that you do. 
during the period that you were an MP from 2005 to 2010, it doesn't neatly fit into that time frame. But the problem with trust in politics that we have today, in some of it came to a head over that period. Some of it came from before because it stems from the Iraq war. And then the expenses scandal at the tail end of the Brown administration in 2009. Again, from inside Westminster and that Westminster bubble, was there a sense among your fellow MPs that something bad was happening, that something was draining away and that the political establishment was in real trouble? Yes, I'd describe the atmosphere as suicidal. Despair for a number of different reasons. One is obviously because of the bad behaviour of some MPs, and that was pretty annoying. But also despair because MPs that hadn't behaved badly were being having their lives trashed. And despair because the party leaderships, all three parties, just didn't care about the the future of representative democracy. They just cared about holding public support by being seen to be uh, more willing to be tough on their on their MPs. So they kind of joined in the uh, the populist wave. You must have some sympathy with that because it's quite hard to be the one who stands out in favour of the long-term future of representative democracy when the other two are pandering to the crowd. I don't know what political leadership's about if it's not about that. The betrayal, I think, of the whole way of, of governing a country by representative democracy at that, that point was quite profound. And we're now still suffering from it. I think it's quite low support for representative government. There's a populist theory, which is very common in the electorate, that all politicians are evil. All voters are pure. Neither of these things is true. Why did you leave in 2010? Had you had enough? Partly because of that. Because just to remind listeners, you left before the election, which was going to result in the Liberal Democrats joining government for the first time in their history. And presumably, you would have been part of such a government if you stayed. Well, for a few months. I almost certainly had to resign in December 2010. So it wouldn't have been a very long ministerial career. What would would have precipitated (laughs) the resignation? Well, the tuition fees. So so I I can't really regret a long missed ministerial career because it wouldn't have happened. Most of the reasons for leaving were personal. It's almost impossible, I think, to live a a normal life as a British politician anymore. And some of this is a technological change. Everyone's got a mobile phone, everyone can photograph you and record you at any moment. And so your life is one of being constantly on show. So at this very moment, I'm talking to you on a microphone, so I'm I'm, I'm on show. This is part of the political life like this. But the idea of doing that every minute of every day, and even in your own house, because you've got no idea who might be outside your door from some Sunday newspaper photographing you, and the ability of the media to distort and selectively to quote, to destroy anybody they like. Greg Miskew, the News of the World, um, once described what the News of the World does as we destroy people's lives, that's what we do. And you're in the front line of that. A person you know, quite likely to have that done to you. It doesn't really matter how innocent you are. So where the expenses scandal fits into this story is the, the utter capriciousness of who was destroyed and who was saved was extraordinarily capricious. And something that's happened since 2010, as we move from scandal to scandal, one of the next shoes to drop was the phone hacking scandal. Hmm. Is it your sense in this election that the power of the press, that capricious power, that arbitrary power to essentially attack people without compunction has been tamed at all? I don't think so. It was never the case that the power of the press had to do with shifting votes. You know, the fact that a newspaper supports this party or that party wasn't really that important. In fact, most of these newspapers just go with the wind. You see the, you know, the classic example with the Sun now supporting two different parties in two different parts of the United Kingdom because that's where it thinks its commercial interest lies. The SMP in Scotland. The SMP Tories in England, yeah. But the real power of the press is, is to destroy individuals' lives. Part of the problem is... is politicians being treated as Z-list celebrities. And so I think that this habit of mind, this habit of of the press of doing this, isn't really about politics at all. It's about selling newspapers, it's about celebrities, but it's transferred to politics. The Leveson Inquiry, which was set up in the aftermath of the phone hacking scandal and was intended to tame the press, that hasn't happened yet. There is no consensus as to what the consequences of Leveson will be. I don't think there will be any consequences. Some legislation was passed, but then suspended. And I think this legislation will never be brought into force. We're now on the cusp of another election in which the Liberal Democrats might continue to play a role in deciding who forms the next government. But we've moved on a long way from 2010, not least because that was a three-way election. And this one clearly involves four, five, possibly six different parties. And as the polls stand at the moment, you can cobble together coalitions which have so many different moving parts, it's hard to see how them lasting. 
24 hours. I'm not going to ask you to predict the outcome. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, the only answer to that is I don't know. No, and, and no one knows at this point. But if we are moving into an even more complex phase of coalition building or minority government, different kinds of arrangements in which perhaps Ed Miliband as a Labour Prime Minister both does and doesn't depend on the SNP for support and so on. Do you think the British constitution is sufficiently flexible and adaptable to cope with this? We're clearly entering uncharted territory, but are we actually going beyond what currently our political system can deal with? not really uncharted. Um, It just hasn't happened for a while. And most of the people who know how to work it are dead. After the second election in 1910, the parliament in 1911 through 15, the Asquith government was a deep minority in the same way that this government after this election might well be. It was dependent on support of a very large nationalist party, the Irish Parliamentary Party. But there was also a splinter group of Irish MPs based around Cork. And the, the, the idea was just one big Irish party is wrong. There was also a Labour Party of about 39, 40 members, you know, a similar position perhaps to the Lib Dems, a few more members than we expect, yeah. but, but structurally the same sort of numbers. And the system survived. The Home Rule Rule Bill passed. The Parliament Act of 1911 passed, which is a rather more important constitutional change than we've had recently. The the answer to the question is, of of course it is. There's going to be a lot of pressure for change. And it's also the, the case that you don't need formal coalitions in these circumstances, that the small parties might think reasonably that they have more chance of getting what they want through a minority government with a vote-by-vote arrangement or not arrangement. And they may draw the lesson from the experience of the recent parliament that the Lib Dems, by locking themselves into a five-year coalition at the outset, ended up the losers and actually didn't gain nearly as much as they could have done by supporting a Tory minority government. Well, I think probably when you look back, the Lib Dems would have gained quite a lot in policy terms by being part of the coalition, but weren't able to explain that to anybody. So didn't get any credit for it. And therefore, the drop in their support is a, a consequence of the political the choice between politics and policy, and they chose policy over politics and suffered for it. But I, you know, I, I remember being in the, in the Commons standing next to Alex Salmon once in a vote. It's one of those votes where we were trying to stop the, the Labour Party taking people's civil liberties away. That was quite a common experience. One of those votes. One of those votes. And th- often we won on those. We didn't win on this one, though I didn't know that at the time. We, because what was going on was that the, the Labour Party had managed to buy off the DUP, this is a sentence that you will hear quite a lot of in the coming years. Um, and I say to Alex, um, yeah, what do you think of this then? And I'm just making conversation, expecting a reply, oh, and we are, this, you know, the DUP again, what do you expect? But instead of saying that, what Alex said was, I think this is the future of politics. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, many opportunities for small parties. And I think he's right. That, that, that is the future of politics. That is lots of opportunities. But, but those small parties need to be very careful about how they exploit those opportunities and, and not to undermine themselves. Being in coalition, the problem with that is that what you lose is visible and what you gain is invisible. You made the comparison to the 1910 election. Hmm. And I think it would be naive to think that the press was any less feral in 1910 than it was today. In some ways, <laughs> when you look at past elections and what yeah. newspapers write, yeah. some of what our newspapers do looks a little tame. Mm. But the difference is the difference you mentioned earlier, which is the level of what you might call technological scrutiny. So it's not as if politicians in 1910 weren't being roundly abused in the Mm. newspapers, but they weren't subject to the same kind of round-the-clock scrutiny, but also that thing of there being a record of everything that they have said and done. And my sense of what's going to be difficult after this one Mm. is that people will not forget because the internet forgets nothing. All the things that have been said in order right. to secure votes, right. which then become hostages to fortune in the post-election negotiations. And my yeah. anxiety is that it's going to be really, really messy in ways that yeah. we haven't seen before, because politicians are going to find it very, very hard to compromise. Yeah, so you can see that happening right now with people drawing red lines and on things that make it impossible for them to get majorities. It's still part of the problem that people haven't adjusted to the politics of splintered parliaments. Their, their minds are still in the, the theory of the, the manifesto and the mandate and the, and the majority government. The policy process where you decide what to do, you then announce it and then you defend it to the, to the death. All those processes don't work in a, in a splintered parliament. People at the top, the, the big two parties, are just not psychologically there yet. And perhaps we'll need the kind of 
experience that Nick Clegg has had and Liberal Democrats have had over the past five years in order to get them to a different place, to persuade them to talk about politics in a different way. Ed Miliband on last week's encounter with a Question Time audience, which was probably the, his most hostile audience on TV in this campaign, took exactly the line that you're describing as the old politics line. And as I watched him, I thought, this is very old Labour, in which he said, I'm not going to be like Nick Clegg. I have a manifesto. If you're going to trust me, you need me to stick to my manifesto commitments. That's why I'm not going to do any deals with the SNP, because I must defend the manifesto. And you watch it and you think, well, you can say that. But if the reality is that that's impossible, that really is a hostage to fortune. This is old politics and the world has moved on. That's right. I suppose the one thing that I did find surprising in Westminster was just how strongly large numbers of MPs believed in that theory of British politics, the theory of the manifesto, the mandate, that your duty as an MP was simply to support your party in what it said at the last election and in delivering its manifesto, and that that produced accountable government. It wasn't just a, a kind of idle academic theory. It was the heart of how democracy worked. That unless that were the case, unless all those elements were in place, people voted for a manifesto, that manifesto then became a mandate that the party had and it had to put it into operation. Unless you had that series of connected events, there was no democracy. I would guess that, that if you talk to most of the Parliamentary Labour Party, with a few exceptions I could almost name, that's what they really think. To some extent, that's what conservatives think, although conservatives always had a rather more flexible view of this than the Labour Party. In many ways, that theory of politics is driven by the Labour Party's development, and the other parties have sort of had to adopt it, and now we're going to see an unwind of it. And as someone who has both experienced it but also studies British politics, the British Constitution, how Westminster works and how Whitehall works, has the civil service adapted to this new reality? Because they also, to a certain extent, once, I think, had bought into that idea that part of their role in a democracy was to help the government deliver its manifesto. Yeah. So how do civil servants view our rapidly evolving political system? They're going to be in great difficulty. Because as you say, the, the, the operating theory is the, the civil service works to the government. The assumption of the system is that the government is the same as the parliamentary majority. And so there's no problem of split loyalty. One equals the other. What that will do is bring into sharp focus what the theory is. So I think this theory has been hidden from the public, that the civil service works for the government and for nobody else. The public sort of imagines that the civil service works for the state in some kind of altogether way that includes the parliament and includes the, the executive branch. But they do not. And this will become really clear, especially in a deep minority government. Government proposal will be defeated. And more to the point, I think this is the crucial point, Government will look for ways for governing without Parliament. It will look to govern by ordering council. It will look to govern simply by its ability to spend. And so if it has supply, you can then vary where it spends without any parliamentary approval. The question then is for the civil service, to what extent are they prepared to help a government govern without Parliament? And my impression is that they will have no compunction at all, that they will actually do that. The civil service really hasn't moved on in its attitude since the days of Charles I. And we're going to be back in that sort of situation of trying to govern without reference to parliament. So do you fear for parliamentary democracy? I mean, that's a fairly bleak assessment of what we're about to enter yes. into, if you think that parliamentary democracy is the linchpin of the yeah. British democratic system. Well, I do think that, and I do fear for it. Because the question then is, well, what, what reaction will there be to this governing without parliament? If the public believed in parliamentary democracy and believed in representative democracy, then you'd expect a, a public reaction, a very hostile public reaction to a government that tried just to ignore parliament. But since the evidence is the opposite, the government is just ignoring the representative body. But will people care? A lot of evidence is that people don't support parliamentary democracy. They don't, certainly don't support representative democracy. They don't re support the idea that their representatives in parliament decide on policies and who the government is and so on. Um, they believe in a more direct populist form of democracy. And a government that's governing without parliament could easily put itself in a position where that's the type of political theory that it's pushing. And so am I fearful for the future of representative democracy in Britain? Yes. Thanks to David Howarth for giving us an unusually frank insider's view. Now back to our news panel. 
On this podcast, we've tried to avoid horse race predictions, but inevitably, all of us have made some calls about what we think is going to happen as we've talked over the past three months. With the vote a day away, I thought we should revisit a few of these predictions to see if anyone wants to admit they were wrong. I'll go first. In episode one, I said the heavyweight contest in this election was going to be between Nicola Sturgeon and Jim Murphy, the Scottish Labour leader. Well, if it was a boxing match, the referee would have stepped in long ago to put Murphy out of his misery. Sturgeon has wiped the floor with him as far as we can tell, partly because Murphy's been fighting so hard just to defend his own seat. Chris, you also said that you thought the SNP vote might be softer than it looked. Do you have any lingering feeling that that might still be true? Obviously, I was completely wrong about that. It looked to me as if there was a great deal of volatility in uh, Scottish political opinion, and maybe the polls would be a bit all over the place, and we might see something of a swing back to the unionist parties. That obviously hasn't happened. I think it may still be the case that there'll be some tactical voting on the unionist side that may benefit some candidates who are standing against the SNP. And Jim Murphy is one of the people who may benefit from that. In his seat, if enough Tories vote Labour, he'll be safe. And and I'll be keeping an eye out, I think, for Edinburgh South to see if the Labour firewall can hold there. But sure, I was wrong about that. This election has been Nicola Sturgeon's election. It's an extraordinary win for the SNP. Helen, one thing that you said was that you believe that Ed Miliband essentially every time, I'm slightly paraphrasing you here, but every time he opened his mouth, he did nothing to help the Labour Party and its likelihood of securing votes. You'll know that most people believe he's had a pretty good campaign and he certainly surpassed expectations. Do you think you were wrong? Do you think now when he opens his mouth, he actually attracts some people to Labour who weren't going to vote Labour before? I think I was wrong in two ways and right in two ways. I think I was wrong because his self-presentation has undoubtedly improved. He sounds more assured and less adolescent. I think I was also wrong because he's been had the good fortune to have been attacked very directly about his personal weaknesses. In that sense, it's allowed the attention to move away from the fact that he still flounders on issues like the deficit and the immigration. And I think the Paxman interview is a good illustration of both those dynamics. The reasons why I would still hold on to at least part of my judgment is first that if you take Scotland, I think it's very difficult to say a situation in which a party leader has presided over the collapse of his party in his heart and the party's heartland has had a successful campaign. And second, I still think that his basic weakness is that he appears to lack political judgment has not gone away. And I think if you'd said to me at the start of the campaign, what might be a good illustration of that? I don't think I could have come up with anything as bad as the Moses Stone. So in that sense, I don't think that I'm entirely wrong on this judgment. Now, Finbar, we've been trawling through things that you've said, and you've been very cautious or prescient or maybe prophetic. You don't seem to have said many things that we're going to show you now can't possibly be true, apart possibly from one. And that's that if you go back, and this seems like a long time ago, when the bishops of the Church of England issued their letter telling people how they should think beyond party politics about some of the deeper issues, you thought it might have an impact. A lot of those things have come and gone, and none of them seem to have had any impact at all, unless we've missed something. At that moment in time, I was probably optimistic that there was going to be a broader discussion in the campaign, and I was wrong. And one of the things that's been very striking to me about the campaign is just how strongly everybody has stayed on message. The parties seem to have gone, for me, past some invisible point where a media interview used to be about dealing with the questions and possibly answering some of the questions, but obviously getting your message out. And it's now, for me, gone completely to the point where it is absolutely clear. Ignore the questions. Keep repeating the party lines. And so I think that the letter from the bishops was one that possibly twigged my my past from my upbringing in Ireland, where the church had much more influence. But I also think letter by letter, from the church to the business letters, to the small business letters and all the rest of them, they all were attempting to move into their own constituency. They weren't all attempting to do the same thing about broadening the nature of discussion into the debate. But for me, it absolutely contrasts to what was happening in the conversation. And it's really disappointing to me, actually, that in every moment over the last two weeks, Pretty much at any time when any of the main leaders have been asked a question, it's pivot, pivot, pivot. Acknowledge the question very limply, but go straight to the party line. And the other thing I've been really struck by in this campaign is there have been no stories about divisions in any of the parties, even including the minor parties that are split from top to bottom. No one's even been able to dig up Greens who want to go against their slightly hopeless leader. 
No one's managed to persuade Douglas Carswell to say anything against Nigel Farage. No one has opened up a gap between Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. I can't remember an election in which I think the press hasn't done its duty here. No one has found a story in which anyone has dissented from the party line. And that, to me, is why it's been such a boring campaign. There are no splits. I don't think it's been a boring campaign at all. I think it's been a riveting campaign. I like watching test match cricket and a test match can end in a draw and a draw can be a completely satisfying outcome. Not in politics, I don't think. Obviously, a stalemate may be disastrous for British government over the long run. It may be disastrous for the British state over the long run. But I think there is something satisfying about a contest where both sides batter each other for months without either side getting the upper hand. And that extraordinary party discipline has certainly been a part of that. Now, it may be unfair in an election that is proverbially too close to call to ask you to call it, but I'm going to anyway. And then I suppose at the end, I should try and call it myself, but I'll make my mind up while you're speaking. Helen, who do you think is going to be Prime Minister? The question I'm going to put to you now is the one that some bookmakers will pay out on um, because they're going to want to leave a bit of time for the parties to negotiate. So they've set an arbitrary date, I think, of the 1st of July. Who do you think is going to be Prime Minister on the 1st of July? I think David Cameron's going to be Prime Minister, but I put maybe a caveat in that a Conservative is going to be Prime Minister on the 1st of July. So you think David Cameron himself might quote-unquote, win the election and lose the leadership of his party? I, I'm not saying I think that will happen. I think that it's in the range of the possible outcomes now in front of us. Finbar, who's going to be Prime Minister on the 1st of July? I think it'll be Ed Miliband. Um, I think it'll be a difficult administration. I think they'll get a Queen's speech passed and that Nicola Sturgeon will do that and then say, no, it's up to you to negotiate. And rather than saying that he's staring Nicola Sturgeon down, etc., and daring her to put the Tories back in, she'll say, fine, be in the seat. But everything you're going to do around the budget, you're going to have to go through me. And that's where the real discussion is. Chris, Prime Minister, 1st of July. I agree with Finbar. I think it's going to be Ed Miliband leading a minority government uh, and having a great deal of difficulty getting much done. I do think it will be hard for the Conservatives to get a majority supporting a Conservative Prime Minister in the new Parliament. So I think Mr Miliband is sort of going to win this one by default. I possibly agree with Helen, and I think it's probably right that we should come out 2-2 on this. If I had to say, though, I'd rather not say, I think it'll be David Cameron. But I would add two things. If it is David Cameron, that means that the polls are wrong. Though on the current polling, the Tories are ahead. The poll of polls won one and a half points. That shouldn't be enough under the electoral system. So something will have to be wrong. It could be that the UKIP vote is softer than we think. It could be the incumbents have a much bigger advantage. There does seem to be a very different polling outcome when you name the candidates rather than if you name the parties. But the polls would have to be wrong. And so my big caveat is my gut, my instinct tells me it's going to be David Cameron. But what does my gut or my instinct count against opinion polling? It seems ridiculous, actually, to go against what is a serious professional business by people who know much more than I do about this. Helen, just to finish on this, if you and me are going to be right, the polls have to be wrong. Why do we think that the polls are wrong? Well, I think that you've got to ask which polls that you're talking about. I mean, one reason why I incline in the way in which I do is there's a clear difference between the phone polling and the online polling. I think actually in the present day, both of them are methodologically suspect. But if I was going to say which of them is the least bad, the least likely to be flawed in the situation in which we're in, I'd say the phone polling has got a better track record, including comparing it with elections in other countries and online polling has. If you go for one particular point here is, is there is evidence, I think, from the last European Parliament elections that online polling overdoes right-wing populist parties like UKIP. UKIP's vote has actually held up pretty well during the course of this campaign. It's not had a lot of attention because a lot of the attention on the outlier parties has been on the SNP. Now, if that is just a little bit softer than the polling would suggest, then that's a, probably a couple more percentage votes for David Cameron. And it is worth adding that in 2010, the polls were wrong, as were, we mentioned this before, the betting markets. Everyone overstated the Tories' support in 2010. There are two possible explanations for that. One might be that polls now overstate the Tory support. They've factored in too much shy Tories. The other, which seems to me more likely, is that polls overstate the advantage of oppositions. And of course, the Tories were the opposition in 2010. Incumbents have an advantage that doesn't show up in polling. And I think that's probably my reason for thinking that the polls might be wrong. Finbar, do you want to agree 
agree with either me or Helen? Do you want no, to stick I, to your red line? I'm going to stick to my red line, but I'm going to agree that I think the polls are probably going to be off. The interesting question will be how much. And there are other effects underneath here that we don't have a read on yet. Probably the most important for me will be whether or not the youth vote actually comes out or doesn't come out. Because we've spoken about UKIP being soft, Russell Brand saying vote for Ed Miliband. Is that going to make a difference? We don't know. But if there is a significant change in youth voting patterns, that could have a significant impact that the polls just aren't catching. Finbar says significant numbers. But Chris, in this election, when it's this tight, significant numbers do not have to be big numbers. A lot of people have pointed out that Russell Brand is asking people to vote who may not have registered to vote in time. But it only takes a few of the ones who have registered to vote to vote in the right seats. And a few thousand votes here and there could swing it. The election will be won and lost in the marginal seats which the Conservatives and the Labour Party are fighting over in England. And some of those margins are very tight. And that's where we should be focusing our attention tomorrow night. It's not only that very small numbers of votes may turn out to be absolutely critical. I think even if the phone polls are better than the online polls, even if the Conservatives take a small lead on the day, there's also the point that people think that the electoral system still has a skew in it towards the Labour Party in England. Labour seems to have to get fewer votes to win each seat. Their vote is more efficiently distributed across the country. So even if the polls are wrong, I'd still hold on to my prediction that we'll see Mr Miliband in Downing Street before too long. Thanks, as always, to Helen Finbar and Chris, to David Howarth and Hue Farm, and to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. We can't know what we'll be talking about next week. It depends on what happens tomorrow. But we hope to be speaking to Chris Hume, who was part of the negotiations in 2010 that put together the coalition government, and we'll be asking what it's like to do those deals from the inside. Whatever does happen over the next week, we'll be here next Wednesday to try and make sense of it. So do please join us then. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University Podcast, Election. Election.